Good morning, this is Randy Landry, and um, this is my 21st podcast in my series in Common Sense and Ramblings in America. Today I'm going to be discussing some Supreme Court reform, and I've written an article on the subject, so I'm going to read some of the excerpts from that. The article is an extremely long article that I posted. There's a lot of information on it and about the Supreme Court and the reforms that need to be done or are they're trying to do that are going to be um, hurtful or harmful to our country. And you can find them in common-sense-in-america.com and that's my blog. So I'm going to start right off by reading some excerpts from this article that I wrote. The first question we can ask is, does the president have control of the Supreme Court? Since the president is not mandated to carry out the orders of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court does not have any enforcement power. The enforcement power lies solely with the executive branch. Thus, the executive branch can take a check on the Supreme Court through refusal to execute the orders of the court. The second question, what is the president's role with the Supreme Court justices? In relation to the Supreme Court, the judicial branch, one of these instituted checks, is that the executive branch, the president appoints Supreme Court justices who are in turn confirmed or rejected by the Senate, the legislative branch. The third question to be asked, can the president change the number of Supreme Court justices? The president, however, does not make the final decision. The number of justices on the Supreme Court is not set by the Constitution, but it is determined by Congress. And when a party controls the presidency and the Congress, the chances for altering the number of justices increases. Now that we've answered some basic questions about how the executive branch and the judicial branch interact with each other, let's discuss some issues we currently have. The Supreme Court's refusal to help Donald Trump change the results of the 2020 election should come as no surprise for the very reason the president hoped to win the case. The court is conservative. That means the three justices who owe their seats on the nation's highest bench to Trump, as well as others nominated by Republican presidents, profess adherence to the Constitution and the precise text of federal statutes. They don't just make stuff up. So in Texas, backed by Trump and a cadre of Republican state attorneys, generals, and members of Congress, asked the court to block election results from Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, it stood no chance of prevailing. This a hallmark of conservative jurisprudence is respect for established law, said Mitchell McConnell, director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School and a former federal appeals court judge appointed by President George W. Bush. No one should be surprised that the justices like the Trump-appointed lawyer court judges in these elections followed the law. Texas lacked legal standing. This is one of the reasons. It has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections, the court said in its brief. The state shot to leapfrog lower courts by framing the case as one in which the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction. Principles of federalism dictate that states decide for themselves how to run their elections. Governors already have certified the votes, making the challenge tardy if not moot. Millions of voters could have 
been disenfranchised if they're legally cast ballots or discounted. Texas is asking the Supreme Court to take up a case in which it would have to find its own facts, in which it isn't remotely obvious why Texas is their right plaintiff, and in which time is of the essence, said Stephen Vladek, an expert on federal courts at the University of Texas School of Law. The posture in which the factual and legal arguments were presented necessarily make it impossible for those arguments to be taken seriously, even by the justices who might otherwise have been inclined to do so. Associates Justice Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, for instance, have urged the court to exercise more often its authority to hear disputes between states without requiring them to start in lower courts. But the Supreme Court still has discretion to deny outlandish requests. Thomas and Alito said Friday they would have granted Texas requests to make it his case, but would not grant other relief. Get the coronavirus watch newspaper in your box. Stay safe and informed with updates on the spread of the coronavirus delivery. They may be conservative on legal and social issues, but they recognize that Texas's claim was political. They may be conservative on legal and social issues, but they recognize that Texas' claim was political theater, not a valid legal action. That it would be impossible for the Supreme Court to serve as a trial court to evaluate allegations of election fraud in multiple states, said John Bellinger who served during Bush's administration as legal advisor at the State Department. To have taken the case would have delayed the transition and caused a constitutional crisis. What sets the justices and other federal apart from the electoral officials is their life tenure, which insulates them from political pressure. While scores of GOP officials saw political benefits in siding with Trump, judges and justices had no similar reasons. Politicians will summarize, sometimes take truly awful positions on legal issues for political reasons. Judges have a different structure for, of incentives, said Ilya Summon, a law professor at George Mason University's Anton, Antonin Scalia Law School. They don't have the same need to cater to a political base or to the whims of Donald Trump, and they have stronger incentives to care about the president they are establishing. Thus, it was that when Trump's lawyers urged the Supreme Court this year to block Congress and New York prosecutors from gaining access to the president's financial records, Associates Justice Neil Gorsuch and Pret Kavanaugh, Trump's first two nominees, agreed that the president is not immune from criminal investigation. Trump's third nominee, Associate Justice Amy Coney Bryant, assured the Senate Judiciary Committee in October that she would not be beholden to Trump if called upon to weigh in on the election. I certainly hope that all members of the committee have more confidence in my integrity than to think that I would allow myself to be used as a pawn to decide the election for the American people, Barrett said. Similarly, Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer joined the court's unanimous 1997 ruling that President Bill Clinton could not sidestep a sexual harassment lawsuit brought by former Arkansas State employee Paula Jones. To be sure, 
Justices may often have views on legal subjects that lead them to understand that law one way or another, said Eugene Volkow, a libertarian professor at UCLA School of Law. But they try hard to honestly apply their understanding of the law without regard to which political figures will benefit from a decision. Jonathan Adler, a professor of Case Western Research Reserve School of Law, put it succinctly. Law matters, he said. Judges are not politicians in robes. Biden, Assembling Commission to Study Supreme Court Reform Report. The Biden administration is assembling a bipartisan commission to consider expanding the U.S. Supreme Court, an idea that Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer this week called the big one. The commission will be housed under the purview of the White House's Council Office and filled out with the behind-the-scenes help of the Biden campaign's lawyer, Bob Bauer, who will co-chair the commission. A specific mandate is still being decided, but in a signal that the commission is indeed moving ahead, some members have already been selected according to multiple people familiar with the discussion. Several leading lawyers and former Justice Department officials have been recruited for the panel, which is expected to have been between nine and 15 members, Politico said, citing sources familiar with the plan. So President Biden has put together this commission to come up with a report in 180 days, he said. So we'll see. Should we restructure the Supreme Court? The death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and President Trump's determination to put a successor in place quickly has focused new attention on the Supreme Court. In a recent presidential campaign, Republicans, more than Democrats, have made selecting federal judges, especially Supreme Court justices, a top issue. Some Democrats are talking about enlarging the court if the Senate confirms a Trump nominee, and Democrats take control of the White House in both legislative chambers. Earlier in the campaign, some Democratic candidates proposed changes to the size of the Supreme Court and the tenure of its members. Congress hasn't changed the court size nine justices since the mid-19th century. The justices like about half the roughly 2,000 federal judges have tenure during what the Constitution calls good behavior, essentially for as long as they want to serve, subject only to rare legislative impeachment and removals. Unsettled is whether Congress could limit justices' tenure on the Supreme Court as long as it preserves their tenure as judges by reassigning them to other federal courts. It typically takes a crisis to generate support for major change to the federal courts, but some Democrats have vowed to push the issue if Trump fills RBG's seat after Republicans blocked Obama's nominee in 2016. The Constitution specifies no size for the Supreme Court. Congress settled on nine in the late 1860s to match the number of judicial circuits. Supreme Court justices have been serving longer terms, with a median term of about 26 years since 1981. A closer look. A review of competing proposals. Interest groups and candidates offer both partisan and nonpartisan proposals, adding seats as payback. In the partisan approach, Democrats, once they are in control of the White House and Congress, would enact a statute adding two seats to the court whose Democratic appointees would counter the most recent Republican appointees. 
Former Attorney General Eric Holder raised a prospect in March 2019, as did progressive groups such as Take Back the Court and Demand Justice. Advocates are frank about their motives. Republicans, they say, stole a court seat from the Democrats in 2016 when they refused to consider Merrick Garland, Obama's nominee to replace the late Antone Scalia. Then in 2017, filled the vacancy with Neil Gorsuch on a party-line vote. Ad seat advocates also point to Brett Kavanaugh's controversial confirmation and claims that neither the Justice Department nor the Senate fully investigated charges and misbehavior from his high school days and beyond. <clears throat> More broadly, critics note that presidents who become, came to office despite losing his popular vote appointed four of today's five conservative justices and Senate confirmation of RGBG's successor would make it one more. And while senators historically have confirmed justices by margins large enough to represent a majority of voters, even given the Senate's constitutional malapportionment, the senators who confirmed the Justice Clarence Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh represented less than half the population. A court so constituted would arguably face a legitimacy crisis were it to start overturning legislation enacted by a popularly elected Democratic president and Congress. A Supreme Court of 15 Justices. Other proposals have at least a veneer of nonpartisanship. They reflect an attitude of do something about the court, short of a partisan restructuring. Former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, a contender for the Democratic nomination in 2020, proposed a court, Supreme Court of 15 Justices. Born from a draft law review article, he suggested 10 justices divided equally between these affiliated with one or the other of two major parties. These 10 would select five more. That arrangement, he claimed in the October Democratic debate, would depoliticize the court, adding that we can't go on like this, where every single time there's a vacancy, we have this apocalyptic ideological firefight with what to do next. The same draft law review article also proposing a rotating nine-member court drum by a lot from the 170 or so Court of Appeals judges, but this proposal has reviewed, received little attention. Time limits on justices. More common nonpartisan proposals would impose term limits on justices. A bipartisan group of judges and law professors began to push this eye in 2009, and longtime and highly regarded political analysts Norman Ornstein has promoted it at least since the 2014 and renews the call regularly. Proponents suggest an 18-year term followed by, if the justice wishes, service in a lower court to honor the constitutional promise of good behavior tenure. Fully implemented, that arrangement would produce a Supreme Court vacancy every two years, barring unanticipated openings. That it says advocates would lower the temperature of confirmation battles. Both sides would realize that the nominee would not be in the court for the quarter century or more, and that has become the norm. What's more, regular turnover would deter the search for young, less experienced nominees who might serve two or more decades, and it would bring new blood more often to an institution that was created when average lifespans were much shorter than now. Major questions. Is there any appetite for change in the Supreme Court? It typically takes a crisis to generate support for major change to the federal courts. Until now, there has been little evidence today of public appetite for such change. 
but the rush to fill RBG's seat late in the election year appears to have whetted his appetite. The designs of the Supreme Court came up, albeit obliquely, in the 2019 Democratic debates, and particularly the du during the 12-candidate October debate, and the commentariat occasionally raises the matter. Several Democratic senators in Supreme Court brief pointed to a May 2019 Quinnipiac University National Survey that they claimed a majority of now believes the Supreme Court should be restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics. But the survey question gave no definition of restructured and supporters registered just a barrel majority. At Marquette University Law School National Survey in October 2019 also concluded, included a long bank of questions about the court. More relevant, it found that nearly three-fifths opposed increasing the number of justices. And then even among committed Democrats, as opposed to a lean Democrat, support was evenly split. By contrast, nearly three-quarters favored term limits, regardless of party. As the presidential campaign kicks into higher gear, and with the court now hearing arguments and eventually issuing discussions on polarizing issues such as transgender rights and unemployment and the fate of non-citizens brought to the country as children, proposals to enlarge the court or trim its members' tenure might gain traction and move the campaign beyond Republican boasts about filling vacancies and Democratic pledges to appoint row sympathetic justices. Would enlarging the Supreme Court produce quid pro quos? Adding seats to the Supreme Court participate or precipitate a game of tit for tat. Upon gaining control, one party would expand the court after the next election, the other party would slim it back down to size or enlarge it much even more. Such rinse and repeat politics would be costly for the court, creating, if nothing else, full employment for the court's carpentry shop as it reconfigured the courtroom's bench every few years. Is anything sacrosanct about a nine-seat Supreme Court? The Constitution specifies no size, which has a variety from five to ten justices, depending on the number of judicial circuits. A major, major job of Supreme Court justices until the late 19th century was to travel about their assigned circuits, trying cases in the old circuit courts. The system's major trial court until 19, 1891. Congress settled on nine circuits in the 1860s and just nine justices. Despite this nine-by-happen stance, some speak of a nine-member court as a Goldilocks ideal. Not too big, not too small. In opposing Franklin Roosevelt's 1937 plan to add justice to the court, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes warned about more judges to hear, more judges to confer, more judges to discuss, more judges to be convinced and to decide. The present number of justices is thought to be large enough so far as the prompt, adequate, and efficient conduct of the work of the court is concerned. Of the 54 state and territorial high courts, 29 have seven members. Only 10 have nine, and none has more than nine. Judges on the 13th Federal Courts of Appeals range from 6 to 29, with a median size of 13, but those courts do almost all their work and randomly selected three judge panels. Having three justice panels decide cases for the entire Supreme Court would be unworkable because losing litigants would inevitably appeal a panel decision to the entire court, prompting satellite disputes about whether to rehear the case and would probably violate Article 3's mandate for one Supreme Court. 
the United States 12 member Supreme Court works, or not King, sorry, uh, mainly in panels. The Canadian Supreme Court and Australian High Court have nine and seven judges, respectively. Is the proposal to add seats to the Supreme Court and to have some justices appoint others constitutional? Is it practical? Congress clearly has a constitutional authority to change the size of the Supreme Court, and a statute prescribing some form of political party affiliation would withstand constitutional scrutiny. Section 251A of the Title 28 provides that no more than five or the nine U.S. Supreme International Trade Court judges may be from the same political party. The website of the Trade Court, though, makes no mention of its party requirement, a reflection perhaps of a general distaste for the idea. Less debatable is whether the Constitution would countenance some justices appointing other justices, given Article II's mandate that the President, with Senate approval, appoint justices of the Supreme Court. It leaves Congress the discretion to vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the President, the courts, or executive branch officials. The 555 member court plan would likely strike more legislatures. Two professors heavily footnoted, please, notwithstanding, as Ruth Goldberg, judicial machinery tinkering that would undermine lines of accountability for the justices selected by the other justices. What would term limits accomplish? Justices have been serving longer terms. This table, so term limits and regularly recurring vacancies might tone down the epic Supreme Court confirmation battles that have occurred roughly twice every eight years, but they might instead make knockdown dragouts a recurring part of the political landscape. An election preceding the end of a swing justice's 18-year term could thrust a court into election year battles more intense than we have already seen. And what about unanticipated effects? Would, for example, justices whose terms are about to end be more willing to hear a case on which normally they might defer action to let the issue percolate in the courts of appeals? So, I'm going to start wrapping this up. There's, this article goes on for quite some time, and uh, I'm not going to read it all to you. Um, you're quite capable of reading it if you so choose. So, in the last section of the main article, plus there's an addendum besides prioritizing Supreme Court reform, Biden's Reform Commission suffers from the appearance of a revankist politics. But as its mandate and membership still aren't settled, it is too soon to say much more. Still, even if Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer calls Supreme Court reform the big one, it's more relevant to ask whether this agenda urgently demands administration's attendant attention. With luck, Biden can tackle one or two big structural issues in the honeymoon prior to the 2022 midterm elections. I don't see how partisan court packing can be one of his top priorities. In any case, it is not clear to me that judicial reform would attract secure support for the Democratic caucus. More profoundly, considering Biden's commitment to the cause of social and racial justice, it might be better to have launched a commission to explore a second round of criminal justice reform, for which there has been immense political support in the public and functional bipartisan consensus for a new policy. No one can doubt that the need on that point remains enormous, especially as regards racial injustice in American judicial process. 
So, of course, another way for the Biden administration and Schumer to respond to Republican judicial advantage would be to invest the same political capital in an energetic appointments effort as Trump and Mitch McConnell did. Instead of focusing on widening the goals or adding minutes to the game clock, the Democrats might accept the rules as they are, seize their president political advantage, and work to ensure some partisan balance in the federal judiciary by single-mindedly pushing through their judicial appointments. They reports that Biden's team is doing just that. But bearing, beating the Republicans at this game will require the Democrats to make judicial appointments a more central feature of their national political strategy. The Republicans have clearly succeeded in making the judiciary a part of their platform and political appeals in the ways that the Democrats have not. It is one of the factors that keeps evangelical Christians so firmly in the Republican camp, even as they may have doubted Trump's Christian scruples. The Republicans have a concerted and coordinated program fueled by the so-called moral majority reaction to the Warren Court's progressive jurisprudence and then radicalized by the Democrats' success in defeating President Ronald Reagan's nomination of Robert Bork to the Supreme Court. If the Democrats' efforts to reform the Supreme Court look like an attempt to restore partisan balance to the judiciary, it's because that's what they are. That's an unfortunate and cynical concession to the polarization of the judiciary and to a brand of legal realism that is informed by a superficial approach to assessing the work of the Supreme Court. It is little more than an attempt to stuff the judicial ballot to the advantage of the Democrats. To be sure, the reform agenda is not being driven by concern for a troubling decline in the quality of American jurisprudence, and so far there is an evidence of a Trumpist capture of the judiciary that is now filled with loyalists and hacks. But beyond all this, maybe the most troubling part of the reform movement is that it is a concession by the Democrats that they can't win the contest for the heart of the American judiciary without changing the rules and changing the judiciary along the way. Well, that concludes my BOG podcast, number 21 for Supreme Court reform. Like I said, there's a lot more information on there, and it goes on and on and on. So, you guys have a great day. Don't give up the fight. Be safe. And until next week, take care.